Unfortunately, we don't have the cream cheese in this segment. I don't even know what that would be. But that's your smooth voice. Oh, well, okay. Well, I appreciate that. Cream Listen cheese. To the dulcet ASMR. tones. Anyway. Did, did I did I seriously just say cream cheese ASMR? What the fuck am I doing on this <laughs> podcast? What am I doing with my life? <laughs> Listen, you're not the one that's supposed to make this podcast horny. Is ASMR inherently horny? It so, can't be. It can't uh, be. It's not. It's not inherently, okay. though. Yeah. I guess hey. cream, cream cheese ASMR probably is inherently horny. That's just a very suspect yeah. phrase. Anything is horny if you want it enough. I, oh, I wish we could edit audio to get that inside <laughs> of here. And I wonder if it's true. Do I suck like I put the suck on? Hello, and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I'm your co-host, Neuropancer, always the commentator, never the commentated. And I'm Josh, a.k.a. Orbital Tangent, still Netrunner's okayest player. If you just stumbled on the Slums Cast, then I imagine you're having a more interesting day than we are, especially because it's the morning for us. The Slums Cast, for your knowledge, is a podcast about Netrunner. If you didn't get that from the write-up, then you're really having an interesting day. But specifically, it is a podcast about genuinely trying and spectacularly failing to be good at Netrunner, though maybe a little less so today than usual. This podcast will not make you better at Netrunner, and it also will not make you a better person, in case you were banking on the thought that you would come away from this episode a better person. We have an intro question this week, as we always do. There's never been an episode of the Slumscast where we didn't have an intro question. The intro question is, what is OTG? Josh, do you want to take that one? Oh, yeah. I'll go ahead and take this one. So it's an acronym, and it stands for Off the Grid, which is a Netrunner card. Mm -hmm. But it's also a series of tournaments that was started by Midwest Netrunners, specifically the Netrunners of the Mead Hall in Minnesota. And we've been running these for four years, and we just recently had one, the 2021 Off the Grid Midwest Championship. And it turned out to be the premier competitive tournament for the Midwest. As we frequently called it, the Off the Grid 2021 World Championships. We are actually joined by one of the luminaries of OTG 2021 World Championships. Would you like to introduce our special guest today? Oh, absolutely I would. Hailing from San San, we have the player who was on Zaya. It's Chris, <laughs> otherwise known as Zinchling on Slack. Chris, how are you doing today? I am doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. And I'm also glad to introduce the second intro question of the day. As we know, there's never been an episode of Sumscast that didn't have two intro questions. We'd actually like to start off just with uh, the top line, I guess, as it were. How'd you do at OTG? I did very well beyond, uh, I would say, kind of beyond my expectations. Given the quality of players there, I managed to come in second overall out of a uh, extremely competitive field of 50, including, I believe it was three world champions and a world champion runner-up. More intense than I was inspecting, but uh, I had faith in myself. Clearly warranted. You did fantastic on the weekend. Obviously, finishing second in any field, never easy, but finishing second out of 50 people with the level of competition, just incredible. That intro question pertains to everyone in the call, though. So, Josh, how did you do at OTG? Well, I would say overall I won, even though <laughs> I didn't play. 
because the turnout was fantastic. The people were awesome. And the event, other than being late both days, went rather swimmingly. So I have no complaints from where I'm sitting. For those who may not have listened to the OTG intro episode, what exactly did you do at OTG? I put together, ran it, advertised it, made sure that all these nerds got to Minnesota and had a good time. Relatively important tasks, I would say, to make sure that they get completed. I will say that it all pales in comparison to just the effort that people put in getting there. It's not a tournament if people don't show up. So Mm -hmm. I want to be clear that my job was the easy part. Everybody that showed up deserves a massive amount of props and thanks. And on that note, so obviously, Chris, you're a very clear example of this. Where did you fly in from? San Francisco airport, but Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. And if I remember correctly, you were not even the farthest to travel. Like, obviously, that's that's a very far distance to travel for a Netrunner tournament. But am I correct in thinking that there was someone from the San Diego or L.A. area? There were a couple people from L.A. I think there were some people from Seattle and Portland. So West Coast surprisingly turned out for this. The Midwest Championship of OTG, second place, San Francisco. We We have a good group here when we put our heads together. The history of the game shows that for sure. So how did I do at OTG? I would argue that I also did very well in the sense of I didn't lose a game of Netrunner in the entire event. I was commentating the whole thing. There are places on the YouTubes where you can see the commentary and uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard to evaluate your own commentary, but I think it went decently well, especially the second day where I had co-commentators and we were doing the exciting games in the cut. I think it just goes to show you don't have to actually play the games of Netrunner to have a good time at events like this, but playing the games of Netrunner is fun as hell too. Your boy over here, Pants, is being a bit too modest. I think he did a fantastic job, and I want to tell him that I appreciate it. And if you do want to see Pants's fine work, it was brought to you by the San San Francisco stream. It'll be on Twitch for a little bit longer, but they uploaded it to their Jackson Howard YouTube channel. And there's links for those on the OTG event page on alwaysberunning.net. So if you want a recap of the tournament, you want to see those top table games you can give the Jackson Howard channel a couple of views. And obviously we'll have links to that in the show notes as well. The tournament would not have been the same without either and both of you there as well. I think both of you are selling yourselves a little bit short. Josh was a fantastic TO process akin to herding cats at times, kept the tournament running smoothly, made sure everyone was paired properly, made constant announcements, gave out tons of prizes, was dressed very snappily on the first Mm -hmm. day. Extremely, yeah. Made it feel like something that could have been run by FFG in the glory days of FFG's big tournaments at the center. Uh, The center. It was the center. Now it is the center. And then pants on the microphone. I've been listening back through the commentary and and watching the games. And having a good commentator is a crucial role when you want to go back and look at the games because they can help decipher what's being played, have a sense of why things are being played, and, and really help the viewer understand the flow of the game, what some of the challenges are. Explain what the cards are when the glare is too bright on them for the viewers at home to see. I've been listening to them the past couple of days, just going through them and very much enjoying it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And actually, I do want to take a second to digress. That's one of the reasons that I thought it would be good to have a commentator on this event, 
It's just one of the challenges that you don't necessarily think of when you think of commentary, because a lot of commentary over the last couple of years has been on JNet games. JNet explains exactly what's happening, explains the state. You know why people have the number of credits that they have in their credit pool. You know exactly how many agenda points they have. Having to keep track of all of that stuff in person is a little hard, especially when people have alt arts. Like we're back in person. We're back with like showing off our fancy alt arts. You have to remember, oh, right, that's an MK Ultra. Or you have to kind of piece it together from context of it's in the heap, but they keep moving it to the top of the heap so it's visible. And, and the glare, really, the glare is just, man, why are sleeves so shiny? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I need to find some good non-glare sleeves. Do they exist? I've never found them. This is way too much to ask for specifically CTZ, who who brought a lot of the equipment set up. Uh, the... He brought almost all of the equipment and yeah. he set it up and all of it. Like he, again, I did the yes. easy part. He did the hard part of setting everything up and making sure it was like yeah. for someone who's never used streaming equipment. It was foolproof for me to not blow up the stream. Shout out to CTZ. If you remember back to Mopus, the soft light setup and things of that nature yeah. that were set up by Dodge. I mean, that would be the way to eliminate sleeve glare but it does require a massive amount of equipment dude had to spend three four hundred dollars to shipping equipment across the nation to set that up for mopus so long-term goal to maybe do something like that but how it went barring that was still fantastic and i do not want to dump on how the the stream was set up i think that you're right like that that was something that was necessary if the games were going to be intelligible after a year on jnet so yeah after a year on JNet, that's a topic we're going to circle back to in a bit. Oh, God, I said circle back. I've been working in corporate world too long. Um, Let's move on. Let's put a pin Cut on the that. feed. Let's put a pin in that. Let's table that idea. We can touch base on that later. Oh, touch wow, base that... is more corporate speak. Oh, cut the feed. All of that was corporate speak. I'd say let's take this offline, but I think that would defeat the purpose. Let's take this offline. Jesus. Next year, you're going to talk about how we need integration and vertical synergies. Does the slums cast have vertical synergy? I don't even know what the fuck vertical synergy means. What would vertical synergy be in a podcast world? Like, do we technically have vertical synergy because we sell merch or something? I don't know. Does that mean that you're in multiple markets or like multiple industries? I think it's that you basically control the entire supply chain for your particular business. It's like uh, like Carnegie basically controlled the entire supply chain for steel. Oh, okay. Or how In-N-Out actually controls like their supply chain from like growers to the table. Oh, interesting. Like they fund the growers or they have the connections directly to them? Because I think in theory, vertical integration would be like you, you, own you the farm. grow the food, you own the farm. So you 100% control the exact prices that get paid for the food. I think they own portions of the supply chain. Hmm. Don't quote me on that, though. There's at least one fast food restaurant that I know that actually owns some growers. I think true vertical integration is like an antitrust thing, and you can't do it in the U.S. anymore. But I'm also not a lawyer. So, you know, don't take business advice from the slums cast. They just split the company up into multiple parts. So like McDonald's does Mm -hmm. it by having the franchise arm and the real estate arm. They own all the land under every single McDonald's, but they don't own every building. Yeah, they're a real estate company more than they are a fast food company. I think when you get 
to a certain level of uh, size of a business, you end up having a whole bunch of stuff you didn't actually anticipate that <laughs> wasn't in your original business plan, but makes business sense to just do. Yeah, de-risks things if you own all of the land, de-risks yeah. things if you own all of the food production. On the note of infinitely profitable, I'd like to move to the next segment, which is one of our well-known, frequently used, well-loved, uh, like we we get requests all the time. People say, please, Slumscast, bring back this segment. We miss this segment. It's the one that I remember the name of at night when I wake up in a cold sweat. That segment, of course, is... Now, I'll be completely honest, Josh, I don't know why people are calling to bring this segment back. I don't actually know what Enforcer 1.0 is as a segment, but I've got something for this week. I would say based on the results, Chris, you were essentially one of the enforcers for the OTG event. Let's talk about how you took down OTG and let's start at the level of the decks. What decks did you play at OTG? I brought Zaya and I brought Precision Design, but my decks were a little tweaked from maybe what people would traditionally play for each. For my Zaya, I was on a Tag Me build, which uses counter surveillance as mm -hmm. a way of closing out the game by accessing a ton of cards at once. Combine this with the card Obelisk as her console, which meant that whenever I access cards from R&D or HQ. I'm gaining credits from her ability. I'm drawing cards from Obelisk. Synergy there. Tag me cards, things like Hot Pursuit and Rogue Trading and Credit Kiting that will give me tags that will fuel the counter surveillance. So I can pop it, access nine cards, draw nine cards, gain nine credits. It's a nice synergy when it all comes together. Absolutely. That was going to be my first question hearing counter surveillance. Obviously, we used to see those counter surveillance decks in criminal out of Liza. RIP, obviously, was an incredibly strong ability probably needed to be banned. Liza obviously just gives you tags for doing a thing you normally do during the game, which is running centrals, uh, sorry, centrals. And I was going to ask exactly how you got tags in this deck. How many tags would you usually end up getting up to by the end of the game? It really depends who your opponent is. If mm -hmm. I ended up playing against someone like a sports metal deck or something, mm -hmm. which goes extremely fast, then odds are good that I'm not getting more than like three, maybe four tags by the end of the game. And that's purely through my own cards. And in those cases, cards like Hot Pursuit and Credit Kiting are really the best ways of doing it. Cards like Rogue Trading, which you have to install and then spend mm -hmm. two clicks clicking for credits from, and that's three clicks where you're not really doing anything but making money against sports metal. And mm -hmm. you have to be much faster against that deck. So you don't often have the time to gain those clicks, to gain those tags to do that. I played against the controlling the message deck in the tournament run by Spags, actually, where I sealed the deal with a credit perfect counter surveillance run to access 26 cards. Cool. 26. Um, so, yeah, uh, I didn't fully intend to take all those tags, but at some point it just kind of happens. You know, when you keep running to IP blocks with Turtle on mm -hmm. the table, you get tags. And most of the time I was fine with that. The other thing mm -hmm. that Obelisk does as a console is that you have an additional hand size for each tag that you have. So, against said controlling the message deck, Spags twice 
actually maybe three times over the two games that we played, played boom for value to knock seven cards out of my hand, but not kill me because I had more than seven cards in my hand, thanks to tags and obelisks. That's a crucial part. He mentioned that he played another Tag Mesiah deck in the tournament that wasn't playing obelisks, and he had oh. a much, much easier time against them because he just had to find one of his two booms and play it and win. Oof. Opolis is a three influence. It's not a, not a cheap include in the deck, mm-hmm. but I think it's crucial. And besides, it works really well with Zaya. Thematically, it could very well be her console, even though it's Anarch and, and from a long time ago. But, you know, the effects are, are similar enough that it's the type of synergy that you would tend to see out of FFG. Right. Obviously, Zaya's console is Penny Shaver or Penny's Haver. And that is synergistic in the sense of Zaya wants to run and wants to get accesses, but you don't get the one credit per access. So it doesn't feel quite the same. Including Obelis in this deck was awesome. If for nothing more, then it gave us the next natural evolution of value Scorch. <laughs> the value boom. Absolutely. You just for years we've wanted it. We finally have it. You done us proud. You done CTZ proud. There's no higher on Brian Road. And Spags too. It wouldn't have happened without the both of you. Exactly. Value boom. Value boom. I think the next stage up is the uh value high profile target. Ooh. Some new cards but, need uh, to be printed for that to work because Mercs doesn't quite do it. <laughs> there's there's nothing in the card pool at all that quite lets you survive that. And and maybe we'll probably touch on this later, but that was one reason why I felt okay playing this deck mm-hmm. is because the meta right now is more limited. People are playing cards like Boom, but usually out of yellow. But Whalen decks are not very popular right now. Because Whalen decks are not very popular right now, I wasn't too worried about high profile target, which even with the extra hand size from Obelisk, you still just die to when you're playing this deck. Because for a click and two credits, they can do twice the number of damage that you have tags. So even if you have something like three tags and a hand size of eight, two high profile targets just kills you. And there were a few of those decks at OTG that were running high profile target and trying to kill you. And mm-hmm. I did the pro player strategy of avoiding them nice. in the in the pairings. The dodge is always the easiest way to get around high profile target as a tag me deck. Yeah. Yes. I will note, I absolutely would have been playing an outfit deck had I played. And I'm still telling you, I still think that deck's good. Nobody's listening to me, but it's going to place in something soon. I swear to God. Probably not as simple mode as some of these other decks are, which is why you don't see the top players playing it and performing well. That's actually a nice segue, if I can, into my Corp deck. My PD deck, basically this came out of an evolution two strands. Continentals, which was a couple weeks before OTG, you know, run by Nisei. I was playing Precision Design and I was playing the more standard version of it, let's say. The version that uses cards like Anoetic Void and Border Control in order to end runs on a single remote and using things like Crisium Grid to help prevent Apocalypse or at least delay it. And I went three and three with that deck and, and almost every game was incredibly stressful. You know, I've been playing mid-range HB, throw something in a remote almost my entire career of Netrunner. That's kind of my jam. I like the idea, but right now it was just very difficult for me to pull off successfully against good runners. And there are a lot of them right now, especially good runners on Apocalypse. 
I was like, all right, I can't do this again. And I thought about switching over to something else like Ag Infusion or whatever. But then I thought, what other purple decks are doing something that was a little unexpected? And so I looked back at some of the Asa decks that I had seen that played hard-hitting news and boom, because very few people expect murder out of purple. Jonas had a really good version of this. That's uh, the big unit 3000. Cody also did a variation on this encoder. And so I kind of pieced together a combination of those, swapped out most of the influence on and the run and put them into hard hitting news and boom and a couple IP blocks with the idea that PD in its essence is still a rush deck. You have cheapish ice that's either a gear check or annoying to get through, but not super taxing. You're creating a remote, you're usually putting in a manic arm to make it annoying to check. So you're still rushing, you're still installing a card in a remote each turn and forcing them to run through it and look at it and maybe deal with a manic arm if they can. But at the same time, you are threatening with hard-hitting news. You are making the runner want to play slower and not make as many just casual runs like they would because otherwise they're going to get buried in tags. And then that will lead to, ideally, a fiery death very shortly. And it seemed to work. One of the important things when you're building a deck for a tournament like this is try to make sure you can get some easy wins. And I didn't really have any, per se, easy wins with the deck. Some people weren't expecting it at all and just got buried in tags. That happened to my first round opponent, Joe, aka Paranoid where he was playing a 419 deck and he ran early trying to get some accesses and I hit him with a hard hitting news and he wasn't set up. I was able to boom him shortly. But even the players that saw one piece of the strategy, they'd see a boom, they'd see a hard hitting news. It suddenly makes them reconsider their plans and do some thinking. And anytime you make your opponent think you're winning, (laughs) that's kind of my strategy. If I'm putting the mental load on you, that makes the game easier for me. And so it gives you the window that you might need to score out something with your seamless launches and just sticking things in remote. And it can fork them because you can get into a point where it's this card in the remote could be a three pointer that I'm just going to score and win the game. But if you run it, then you're going to end up paying a bunch of money and you'll get hard hitting news. So it has a lot of value in the way that it plays and the way it makes your opponent change what they're expecting. Again, because this is a version of the PD that wasn't really being played, most people, they're expecting the kind of taxing remote build. And so they go into it thinking, okay, I need to play this. I need to do this. That changes how they might mulligan what they're looking for in their opening hands, whereas I'm playing a different strategy. That idea of give yourself free wins, give yourself easy games is a really good tip on playing in an actual tournament. I think that it's something that's easy to overlook. I think that's part of why the sports deck got so popular so quickly is, you know, like there is still play involved in the sports deck. You still have to play correctly. There are still decisions to make. There are still decision points. There are still difficult turns, but your overall strategy does not change that much from game to game. The general strategy is, do you have an agenda in your hand? Score it. And if you can't score it, draw. You know, I was talking with Dan Dargenio uh, at the tournament who made his return to, to competitive play at OTG. Mm-hmm. And he was on a sports medal deck and he hadn't been playing Netrunner for, you know, a while. And it took him a game or two to get back into the flow of things. But even he was saying, you just play your cards and you win. 
one of the the benefits of that sports metal deck is it is extremely linear you have your game plan it plays itself if you do it right and you just make sure that you don't lose to clot and you don't get all your two-point agenda stolen it even does the very fun thing of you audacity away your cards you don't even have cards in hand to look at while it's the other player's turn you're just like no go you deal with it on the note of these decks how did you decide to play both of these decks at otg so, like I said, I, I'd been playing variations on these decks at Continentals, and my Zaya actually, I changed a few cards around for this, but it went two and four at Continentals. And so I was really disappointed, and I knew the deck had potential, and it just didn't live up to it. And so I needed to make a few changes to the deck. And one of the changes that I actually did with that is putting in a paperclip for my Fractor. I was using Marjana before. Mm. Oh, um, which Ugh. is great if I'm expecting, you know, PD or sports and all I have to deal with are vanilla, maybe a Hagen, you know, maybe an IP block or something like that. Marjana can deal with those. But I ran into a couple Acme decks and Ooh. Acme plays Data Ward and Data Ward is a barrier. It's strength eight, four subs that say end the run or in the run if you're tagged. Normally, people could walk through it just paying three, but when you put it in Acme, you automatically have a tag if that's the first piece of ice you encounter. You have to break it, regardless of whether you pay three or not. In addition, I'm assuming in Acme, just given their ice suite, given their playstyle, you probably have not made a successful run that turn to discount the Mariana Breaks Barrier subroutine. Sometimes you can. They don't necessarily always ice up archives, but... Decks that play high taxing ice, even if you've made a successful run, Majana costs 11 to break data ward, and that's not feasible. And if you haven't made a successful run, that goes up to, I think, 15. So I was trying to figure out what to do, and and Mackler is expensive and still doesn't really solve the problem because it's still not a great breaker. I think Mm -hmm. it costs 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, maybe 9. You need to have 10, and then it gives you one back to break one. Cost five to install is bad against low strength barriers. So I just sucked it up, spent the last three influence in the deck on a paperclip. After facing three Acme decks on the day, I think it was a, a wise choice. I enjoyed playing the Tag Me build, and I find it far more interesting than the 419 decks or the Max decks out there right now, just because it's a fun, different thing to do. I don't know if you went over this already. Tycoon. Did consider Tycoon. I actually used to play this in previous Tag Me decks with Liza. With Tycoon, it was fine because I was blowing up their ice afterward with Apocalypse. But I think right now Tycoon is not quite as good. You know, Account Siphon no longer existing, so I can't take their money back after I give it to them. Doof exists, but it's not the same thing. And also, it's a terrible feeling to, for instance, break a barrier on a remote with Tycoon, give them two credits. They then turn around and use those two credits on an Anoetic Void and end the run. I want to like Tycoon. I have a soft spot for Tycoon, but I, unless you're getting rid of the ice that is continuously taxing you on this, I just don't think it's as worth it. PD, you know, Purple Life, most of my career I've played a mid-range build-a-remote-style deck. ETF, occasionally uh, RP, replicating perfection. Let me build my remote. Let me put my credit cards in it and let me drag you through it and tax you out. I like having that variant. I'm looking at the PD deck and I love some of the little synergies here. Like 
I think the agenda suite, one of the things that sticks out to me is the fact that you're on Vacheron versus GFI. GFI is great for the classic PD plan, make them steal four agendas no matter when in the game they get them. But for this particular PD deck, you have to cut the GFI for influence reasons. That's how you get your IP blocks. That's how you have the full suite of spin doctors, but also reversed accounts and how you have the full suite of hard-hitting news. But I think it's actually just also better because in that fork situation you're talking about, they either have to run the remote and steal this 5-3 that wins, but if they do run it, then I boom them. All you need is a turn. Vacheron gives you like four. That's exactly right. You know, Vacheron gives you time to land that hard-hitting news, time to find the boom in your deck, because I'm not playing a consulting visit or anything. So you actually just have to draw to find it. And a lot of times it's it's better to draw it and pitch it early. Have the runner trash it is even better. Because the thing that PD has that Asa does not is built-in recursion. Oh. Um, whenever you score an agenda, you can bring a card back to your hand. Most people use this on seamless launch, but you can use it on boom. Um, (laughs) the dream is you know have them tagged your boom in the trash and then score a luminal transubstantiation gain (laughs) three more clicks bring boom back to hand play the boom with the clicks that you just gained from scoring the agenda oh that's amazing (laughs) they can never give hb a 2-1 now because then you can just seamless launch get back boom boom yeah that would that would be fantastic actually (laughs) I love that. Actually, the the IP blocks I wanted to ask a little bit more about, Mm -hmm. how were those on the day? How did you like them versus having more of the classic HB barriers and using that influence somewhere else? They were fine. They're annoying to to four and nine players that are playing Amaqua. And it's just a little extra tax against max decks and, and so on. It's cuttable, I think, but I felt that they were nice to have. And if I really wanted to land a tag... A lot of max players, you know, especially if they're on an apocalypse build, they're not going to bother to break it. They'll just say, you know, pay trace or whatever. So there's a good chance you can tax them out or make them spend some money. This deck is not optimized. I will I will say that uh, this is my my first go at it. There's a lot of changes that I kind of thought about. And you could just replace them with more, another vanilla and another Hagen probably and be OK. But on the day, they were fine. Just annoying enough. Maybe you can play around with the advanced assembly lines or the tranquility home grid, or if you really wanted, and you could go back to GFIs, or you could find something else. I, you know, there's some some flexibility here. Yeah, tranquility home grid, obviously, just fantastic in a world with four one nine. Pay one, gain two. Oh, that's so good. Turn that tax into a tempo positive thing. Just B E T F. When you're not playing against four one nine, gaining two is also really nice. Oh, yeah. Or drawing. You know, drawing a card is pretty good. Be super um, ETF. Yeah. I kind of wrote it off for a long time because it's not Breaker Bay Grid, but it, it does work. Another thing that I want to mention about these decks, the write-ups have absolutely fantastic choice of image slash GIF in them. <laughs> we'll have links to these in the show notes. Make sure you go and I'm, I'm not going to spoil what they are, but they are excellent choices. Yeah, I put some time into it. A related question then. How did you decide not to play other decks there are a few other decks that are like very popular very good in the format how did you decide that those were not for you that's a good question the easy thing to do is to play sports and 419 or apocalypse max or something 
And anyone who wants to play those, I don't look down on you or judge you for making those choices. I almost played Max, built an Apocalypse Max deck. I almost put it in. I was still debating, you know, on Friday night, which deck am I going to play? Mm-hmm. I had, I even had a 419 build that split between Paragon and uh, Security Nexus mm-hmm. as consoles as a nod to Acme. I talked to CTZ beforehand. I was like, which one of these should I play? And he's like, oh, please, I don't, don't play Max. Don't play Max. So, I can hear him saying it. I can just hear it. So, you know, taking word from on high. Part of it is also play testing. I am lucky in that here in the Bay Area, we actually do have a small group that gets together weekly in person and plays cards. This started up about a month ago or so. And, you know, it's a good crew and it's a, a mix of skill levels. Some of them are, are more beginner side and some of them are more expert side. Cody Lawson is one of those people that also helped me test a lot. I think it just comes down to play what you find fun, but practice. And I think that this actually was something that a bunch of players at OTG had some challenge with, especially with some of the returning players, is they were given good decks. They have all of this institutional knowledge, this expert knowledge that's bouncing around in their head of how to play Netrunner but not with necessarily exactly the decks that they had, not with the cards that they had coming back into Nisei cards. I think there's a lot of value in jamming games and practicing, and not just practicing against anyone, but practicing against players that are of the caliber that you expect to face. Trying to make sure that you know what the lines are and all of the little things that can occur during the course of a game. Do you have a plan for this? If you encounter them in playtesting, it becomes a lot easier than when you're on the table doing it for the first time. Agreed. These decks, they were more fun. I tried sports metal and I did not have fun. I found that there were a few too many times when I'd have an agenda I want to score with an audacity and have a Vacheron in hand. And I didn't Mm. want to bin my Vacheron. It didn't fit the play style that I enjoyed. Find the decks that you enjoy playing and practice with them a bunch and then play them. I think that that's a fantastic tip for playing Netrunner at any point in the game's history. I'd like to focus on one particular aspect. So you brought up practice with the decks. I think there's sort of a, like if you go to the farthest logical extent, we saw some, uh, in fact, some on stream in very high profile games, lack of practice with the cards leading to game losses. Do you have any tips on playing in a tournament in person without JNet in 2021? How did you keep from game lossing yourself during the tournament? I guess is another way to word this question. A lot of it comes down to familiarity with the cards. One, playing with physical cards rather than digital implementations of them. But two, also knowing exactly what you have in your deck and being comfortable with it and having played the lines multiple times. Yeah, game losses happen sometimes. Sometimes yeah. you'll put two, uh, two regions in a server. Mm-hmm. You don't intend to. You're going to put something there. Especially with some of the HB cards that Nisei has come up with The color design and the thematic design are excellent throughout the set. There's consistency in them, which is both pleasing, but also can be easier to confuse if you're Mm -hmm. not paying attention to your cards. Um, Yeah. You know, you think you're putting a manic arm and a tranquility in a server and you put two tranquilities in there. Mm. There's something to be said for holding physical cards in your hand and, and practicing with them. But it's also just there's stress, but slow down and 
think carefully, plan your turns out before you take them and and really stop to think about what you're doing. Because it's very easy, especially if you're playing a, a deck like sports that just wants to go fast. Because the deck wants to go fast, you want to play fast. And I think that that's a trap. I think that you can play, you know, a speedy deck without being speedy yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that's a trap, actually, because I believe on stream we watched two regions in a server from... Actually, that was what we saw was attempting to shuffle back cards that were not agendas with Gatekeeper. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we, we I was there saw, to make the judge call, so I should have remembered that. We also saw Tranquility Home Grid, uh, a different game, but we also saw Tranquility Home Grid in a central server. Sorry, a central Ooh. server. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just playing fast, and because you're used to Jinteki not letting you do certain things. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, if I can do this, I should be able to do this. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just be familiar with your cards, especially if you're using proxies, which is perfectly legal Mm -hmm. and I'm perfectly happy to play with, but you better know what you're playing with. Go slow. It's okay to play a fast deck, but think slow. Mm -hmm. So Pants, that's probably a good transition to the last part of the segment here. The last question that we have here, let's say that our listeners at home wanted to pick up the decks that you played. They wanted to pick up Counter Surveillance Saya and Boom PD. They wanted to practice them and try to take down their own event. What would you recommend they do to start learning the deck? And then once they've learned the basics, how would you recommend they try to take it to the next level? That's a good question. I think it definitely depends on on if they're coming into this brand new or if they have previous experience with it. If you have previous experience with this, then you can jump in at a little higher level because you're you're familiar with the general ideas, but being able to to tweak it to your own playstyle is important. The Zaya deck itself is not extremely beginner friendly. Neither of them are super difficult. They're not things where you have to learn a whole bunch of lines in order to play well. They're not some like shaper, let me pull all these things together and have exactly the right answer at the right time decks. I'll start with the corp because I think it's a little easier. The general idea with the corp is you want to protect HQ, you want to start making a server and you start wanting to put one card in that server a turn at least and make the runner actually run and check that and hopefully hit some of your good ice You do have to learn kind of when the best time to res something like Gatekeeper is, and that will come with practice. In general, you just need to stick things in a remote, try to make some money, try to make sure that you have enough to hard hitting news them. I often won't put ice on R&D for a while until I have at least two on a remote, maybe three, depending on who I'm playing against. You'll lose our agendas off R&D. Don't Mm -hmm. panic. It's just going to happen sometimes that you you get picked, but you can usually win off the remote before they win off R&D. Try to over-advance your Vitruvius because having that extra, being able to pull back something on demand is very important, especially for things like a seamless launch or hard-hitting news. It's worth it to get the counter on the Vitruvius rather than just scoring it as two points, unless that wins you the game, in which case do that. Against a deck like Apocalypse, your gatekeepers are probably your best value. Try to force them on centrals and res them on the turns that you think Apocalypse is going to happen and then bring them back when you can because anytime that a max deck, for instance, has to run through a gatekeeper to do an Apocalypse and install a Black Orchestra, that's nine credits. That's a lot of credits. 
and that puts them in hard hitting news range much easier. As a max player, I agree. Having to break gatekeeper when it's sixth strength is the worst feeling. That's really most of the deck is watch for times when you can hard hitting news them. Don't overextend to do it, but sometimes it might be worth it just to tax their resources. You know, you've put a card in a remote and then you play hard hitting news. And now the runner has a choice. You know, they can go broke trying to fight off the hard hitting news. They can spend a whole bunch of time and clicks getting rid of the tags from a hard hitting news. Or they can run the server and try to, you know, see what you put in there. If you put an agenda in the remote, you're threatening to seamless launch it. Try to set up those forks where they have to do one or the other. And then for the runner deck, I'd say that uh, really you just want to draw cards, grab tags when you can. Early aggression can be fine. If they have a single ice on HQ, you know, a perfectly good play is Boomerang Hot Pursuit. It's okay to start taking tags. If you think your opponent is on some form of kill, you want to find your obelisk early rather than late. It may be worth mulliganing for, but it's not a necessary part of it until later in the game if you don't think that they're trying to kill you. If you play your rogue trading, play it and click it in the same turn. Mm -hmm. And then if your opponent doesn't immediately trash your rogue trading, probably next turn is a good time to take your turn and take the 12 off of it. Money is very good for the deck. Usually just say thank you to your opponent and, and take the tags and the money. I think in almost all of my games, they were trashed on site. So don't play it without clicking it. And if you can, click it fully. And the two games that I wasn't trashed were both against Acme. The first game, multiple times, he just deliberately, intentionally did not trash it, thinking that he had enough money. But that's mm-hmm. the money that fuels your counter surveillance runs because you have to pay for however many tags you have. The extra 12 comes in very handy. And then semifinals against Aaron Andrews, there was, he made a point of trying to trash my rogue tradings as soon as I put them down. And the one turn that he didn't, and he, because he was very low on credits, he just clicked for credits, I immediately took the 12 off. And that was what fed the counter surveillance that ended the game. Be careful using your rogue tradings and, and try to get as much value out of them as possible. If you're playing against sports or something, it's going really fast, then maybe you don't have time to do that. But against almost any other deck, they're worth it to get the money. Is it worth, if you don't have any tags yet, just installing Rogue Trading, not clicking it, and then spending your next turn hitting two charges instead of just one? Sure. I think that that's viable. If it's still early in the game and you haven't found any of your tag cards, an early install, because you're usually drawing at that point and you're trying to find the cards that you need to make the deck go... Install for zero without any tags and don't worry about it. And then at some point, take a bunch of credits off of it. Mm -hmm. So the credit kitings are there primarily to give you tags, but also it helps make cards like Amina playable. And Mm -hmm. if nothing else, it's a four credit discount on Obelisk or the Class Act or Paperclip, some other expensive thing. One thing I like to do is make a central run, play Mutual Favor to get a breaker in hand, but not install it, and then play... (laughs) Credit kiting to install it at a discount and take a tag. Love that. (laughs) I like how credit kiting in this deck is just straight up better than career fair. And it's like a super career fair, a super dirty laundry. The correct one would be the shaper version of it. Code siphon. That is no longer in the game. Oh, modded. It's a blue modded that gives you a test. Yeah. Which, you know, is sometimes pretty good. 
Yeah. And then don't be afraid to just run for accesses, try to text them out, hit HQ, make them res ice, drop your sneak door, run into HQ again. They usually do not expect this. Sneak door is not very common in the meta, but it is very fun in this deck and you can catch people off guard with it quite often. And then when you're firing your counter surveillances, I tend to fire them one early and one later. And usually the early one, if I can get you know, three or four accesses off of it, that's probably fine. I'm usually okay with that. Don't want to hold them out for, you know, oh, I have 12 tags. I want to access their whole deck at once. You're not that kind of deck. Uh, You're not necessarily just building up for one big access that's going to win you the game by accessing their whole deck. That can happen, but that's not really what you're doing. You're still a criminal. You still have, you know, Amaqua and Boomerangs. You're still trying to make runs and make accesses because the punishment for making runs early right now in the game is hard-hitting news, and you don't care about hard-hitting news. And it is an immensely freeing feeling to not care about hard-hitting news and just be aggressive criminal and run. So check things, run into things, go for it, play more aggressive in the beginning then you can start kind of pulling back. Don't spend too much. Like, don't spend yourself down by being aggressive because the deck doesn't have that much money in it. It has money. If you play it right, it can have a lot of money, but it can also spend a lot of money. Be a little conservative in your spending, but try to do one counter-surveillance, I guess I want to say late, early game. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you can save the other one for to help close out the game at the end. Doglin's Pass is, of course, good with her. It's why her has her image on it. But it turns her into Gabe. You know, mm-hmm. the first time you run HQ, gain two credits because mm-hmm. you're accessing two cards. And remember that if they've put an upgrade in the root of the server, you are accessing that card as well. You are gaining a credit for accessing it, even if you do not trash it. So it's like, oh, they didn't res their Chrysium. Okay, I'll just gain an extra credit for hitting it. One of the little synergies with being criminal, because obviously the Chrysium on HQ is the classic play against criminal to prevent diversion, to, I guess, prevent embezzle, mostly to prevent diversion. And hot pursuit, unfortunately. Yeah, we did see that through the weekend. We saw someone res just to deny the credits and the tag off of hot pursuit. Yeah. Is there a reason that you're playing two Docklands and not one? Yeah, I mean, I think the two Docklands are there partly for the sports medal matchup, because you want to be able to have multi-access against that as quickly as possible. But also it's, I mean, Docklands Pass and Zaya is kind of an econ card. It pays you back for accessing. And it's ability that can't get turned off by Chrysium. I've had turns where it's like, okay, I'm going to bravado into HQ with a res Chrysium. I pasteurize, it doesn't matter if I get the money from bravado, whether or not it's successful. I access cards in your hand just because I access cards and I get money for accessing cards. And I don't care that you have a Chrysium because your Chrysium does nothing against any of these effects. Having the two in there is a nod for I want to see it early and the fact that in Zaya specifically, it functions as an econ card. Normally here, I would ask a question like, what was your most memorable match or what was your most memorable play of the weekend? But actually, I think we should do that in a new segment instead. Okay. New segment called... Fast break break because obviously the the HB card with the dude dunking, it's time for us to talk about big plays. What was your biggest 360 no-scope breakaway posterizing slam jam boom shakalaka dunk of the weekend? Um, My favorite play was in round four. This was on stream, if anyone cares to watch the stream. 
and I was playing my PD against a 419 deck. My opponent had made a run last turn and ended on, I believe it was 11 credits. And I had installed a card in the remote previous turn, and he did not check it. Click one was Seamless Launch, place two advancements on a card. Click two, res that card, and fire reversed accounts to make him lose eight credits. Click three was hard-hitting news and uh, stick him with eight tags, uh, knowing that I have a boom in archives and uh, Vitruvius with a counter. <laughs> or actually, no, I apologize. I did not have the boom in archives at that time. That was uh, still in my deck. But I had the Vitruvius with a counter, and I was just very happy to land that out of nowhere, which is why that one of reversed accounts in the deck kind of exists there is for that combination with seamless launch and unexpected credit loss. I was hoping this was going to be the play you talked about. I remember seeing that on stream, and I think I yelled when you res the reversed accounts. <laughs> that was such a sick play. Just Oof. another, you know, seamless launch. What a good card. It also does that. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. The entire tournament was filled with fun things. Like it was, it was an excellent, excellent tournament. I still remember almost all my games and it's a week later and every single game was against a quality opponent and it was fun. Like it was stressful, but it was fun. Unfortunately, this one didn't end up happening just because in the grand finals, your opponent found the correct line, but there was the ability to win a game by install Vacheron or seamless launch get seamless launch back with Vitruvius counter, even though you only have one in hand, seamless launch advance win. Yeah. That would have been a pretty cool one, but I don't know. Seamless launch on reversed accounts might've still been a cooler play. That game against Greg, it was fantastic. Greg is a, an amazing player and deserves the win. I keep going back to that game and going back to that turn specifically in my head and trying to replay it and see, was there something else I could have done if I had expected something out of him, could I have played it differently? And I think that's just the, the mark of a really good opponent and a really good game is you, you, you're going back to these like inflection points and, and trying to see if there was something different that you could have done. Regardless of these big plays, it feels to me like leaving the caps lock on as you post GG or something like that. Caps lock? Did you say caps lock? Yes. Caps lock, like capsaicin lock that's right it's time for Ooh, that's spicy. all right this week on who that's spicy one of the spiciest parts of this event which we want to make clear to the listeners at home was the absurd level of competition in the building i mean come on if you look back at the top eight it's greg tongue it's chris it's zinchling it's aaron andrews it's jason dang it's Dan Darginio. It's Spags. It's Ian. I have no idea who that is. And it's Kisra. Look at that top eight. So y'all saw it in the Slack before the event. You knew who was coming. I want to get a spicy take from you. Who were you most worried about potentially facing at OTG? Most of the people you just named. Um, <laughs> that, that's fair. That's very fair. I, I think... Uh... Dan and Limes were the other two that I was a bit worried about facing. There's that level of intimidation there of like, wow, these guys, you know, are names in Netrunner. They played a lot. They're very good players. They've done extremely well. But I think at the same time, one of the things that as a player going in, you have to say, this is really cool that we're playing, but they're still just people. 
they're just another person and I can play well and beat them just as I could mm -hmm. play anybody else. And that's kind of the, the attitude that you have to have going into this. You have to demythologize these people when you're facing them. That can be difficult to do when you're facing someone like Dan or Spags, you know, the people who, who make their personalities as much a part of their play as, you know, as their game is. And it doesn't mean that you're not in for a challenge, but you have to believe in yourself. You, you have to believe in your, the heart of your cards. You have the skills. You have the practice. You can play well. You are just as capable of playing well as any of these other people. And you just have to go for it. Good answer. Good answer. In a sense, did it help facing former world champion Joe Shupp in round one in that regard? I'm not going to say it helped in, in any regard. It was definitely one of those, okay, we're starting on hard mode yep. uh, moments. But, you know, I kind of knew that that possibility was there. I suppose in a way, like winning with the decks against him, because I managed to sweep him in the first round, did give me that sense of, all right, I can do this. I'm ready to go. Let's go. I think it was favorable for me that he was still getting used to the cards and had to read, you know, some of the new Nisei cards and was getting used to feeling for his decks. At the same time, it's still, yes, he's a good player. I'm a good player. I can do well against him. I can do well against anyone. Just keep believing that. None of my opponents this weekend were easy. Mm -hmm. None of my games this weekend were easy, but they were fun. That's borne out by the strength of schedule, I think, when you look yeah. back at the top eight players. There's not a strength of schedule that goes below 3.5. Everybody faced opponents that were above the curve, and it was fierce. Speaking of above the curve and, and cuts, we have a bonus jalapeno popper in Who Dat Spicy. Ooh, tasty. We're talking about in the cut. Were there any players or matchups that you saw and you were like, no, God, no, 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 God, no, no, anyone but that? There were two examples in the top eight that I can think of. The first one was against Kat or Kisra in the first round, and I chose to corp against them because they were on sports medal, and I wanted to avoid the sports medal matchup if possible. I think it is at best a toss-up and it was early in the morning and I would rather make them think about how to survive a hard-hitting news out of 419 than how to windmill slam agendas. Making your opponent think is a victory for you. The other matchup that I was hoping to avoid um, and I guess technically did by losing to him in the first game was uh, Greg's Acme because his Acme contains a Keegan Lane in it. Everyone in the audience is going, what's Keegan Lane? Was that a card? Standout drill runner, all-star Keegan Lane? What does that do in the game? <laughs> Keegan Lane, BG, basically says, if the opponent is tagged during a run on the server, trash Keegan Lane, remove a tag, trash a program. Which, okay, if you're playing against Anarch, it's whatever. They just reinstall it. Against criminal decks, such as mine, if they are able to trash my Begalter or my Amina or even my Amaqua, I have no way of getting them back. And not being able to break a Hydra is bad. There is never going to be a time when I am running on servers without tags in a Tag Mizaya deck. And this is, again, an invention of CTZ that Greg decided was valid. One of those 
random cards from back in the day that no one really ever thinks about suddenly becomes a crucial card in a matchup. I was hoping to avoid facing that, and uh, by losing to him in the first game, I technically did. That extra bit of spice that I was did not want to face. The tags giveth and the tags taketh away, I suppose. I guess my question is, say you had made it to game two, is your strategy versus the Keegan lane to like find it first and then trash it? That, that's my out, is, is find Keegan lane and trash him before it can get installed or deal with it somehow. You know, maybe I'm running it when he can only hit one thing and it's not as important. I have the turtle, I have a mayfly in the deck. So it may be that if he's able to find it and fire it early and trash Begalter or something, then I just build up a whole bunch of money and get some tags and try to do a counter surveillance win using Mayfly instead. It's extremely difficult because it also packs Anoetic Voids and Chrysium Grids, both of which mm. stop my counter surveillance runs pretty dead. So I think it would have been a difficult match. Winning on a counter surveillance run with Mayfly would have been such a cinematic way to go, though. No matter how the run ends, that is memorable. Yes. Yeah. Mayfly, let's go. That's fantastic. Too bad. That would have been spicy. We do have one more bonus jalapeno popper. Yeah, that's right. We're making it a plate. What's your spiciest take on the meta right now? My spiciest take on the meta, it's not solved. Hmm. I think people have found some very strong decks in it right now. Players have gravitated to them because they are strong and linear. But I think that there are some solutions out there. And I think that there are innovations yet to be dug up. We need more people doing weird stuff with decks to find them. The meta is still open for however many people think, oh, 419 is the only runner you should bother running with in criminal. Max is the only runner that's fast enough for the Anarch. There have to be decks out there that are different enough that will shake things up. We just need to, to put more playtesting time in to find them. I, I want the meta as spicy as possible. I want, I don't think this is the answer, but you know, there, there's room in Netrunner right now to do some weird stuff. There were some very good players at OTG lost to a deck that was Reality Plus that played Re-Education Neurospike. Mm -hmm. re-education to shuffle back almost all of the cards in the runner's hand and then deal three damage how did i not hear about this deck this is actually an interesting point a lot of people are saying oh well these are the only playable decks and so people play them but i think decks like re-education some of the tau shaper builds out there in the hands of a top player they'll do well they are capable of top eighting or winning. But it kind of goes back to the linearity of a deck in that these decks are more complicated to play. They require more thought. They require more effort. They require more time. And over six rounds, if you're having to think hard every single round, that gets exhausting. All things being equal, discounting personal preference for playstyle. The top players are going to play the decks that both have a high chance of winning and are relatively straightforward to play because this is the easiest way of doing things. If you can just get through the first four rounds of Swiss and then be able to ID into the cut or whatever, if you can do this, if you can play decks that get you those wins without having to stress incredible amounts, make effort for it, you're going to go with those decks. 
you know, everyone's saying, oh, Shaper's dead, Shaper's dead, you know, fuck Shaper or whatever, if we can say that. I don't know if we can say that. We can um, absolutely say fuck Shaper. In fact, we often do. Indeed, fuck Shaper. Okay, this is not a PG stream, got it. Absolutely fucking not. I do think that you could build a Shaper deck that does very well. You know, Dan B did that, Aaron Connells went five and one with a Tau deck. Shaper can be there, but it takes more effort to get it to that point than it does to just play 419 or max. Their game plans are linear. Shaper is a wild tangle. And if you're playing in a tournament and you do maybe don't have a whole bunch of time to do playtesting beforehand, you're not emotionally attached to a particular playstyle or a runner, you're just going to go with the easiest thing because it's good and it wins games. But I think that there are decks out there that can shake things up. Part of the reason why Card Hating News might not be in the meta is because people can play Misdirection, clear tags very easily, or Shapers can clot and prevent fast advanced decks from winning. But we're not seeing that because the rest of Shaper is not as easy as the decks that are winning. I do agree with you that the meta is not solved. And we talked about this on the predictions episode, and, and it actually showed up and won it. But Ian was talking about, well, for the meta to change, you'd have to have some sort of like slow glaciery deck. We noticed the evolution of NBN as a faction over the course of Continentals and then finally culminating the Acme consulting deck. I agree with you that the meta is not solved in the sense that we have all of the decks that could possibly be built that will solve the various problems on either side. I do think that we have found some very good top decks that are likely to be the solutions. With with PD and sports, for instance, they're just they're so good, they're so linear, they're so resilient. The evolution of the Acme deck just proves what you're saying. Beyond that, the meta isn't necessarily fixed. We've seen it, you know, morph as over the past few months. And I think a lot of it is players reacting to what they expect to see in the meta that they're playing in. When sports first came out, people weren't ready to deal with it being that fast. So decks mm -hmm. changed. And so then court players said, well, okay, if now the runners are placing all of their effort into being fast, maybe I can go slow and make these cards that are tuned to going fast less effective because now they have to deal with slow big things rather than quick cheap things we are entering into a point in the meta where we have these two basically dichotomous ends where you have the fast pd and the slow acme you have to be able to deal with this fast advance but you also have to be able to deal with managarm anoetic and a hydra and that actually could be a place where Shaper kind of pops back up because that is one of the tools of Shaper is I can adapt to whatever's happening. I may not be yeah. tuned to one specific thing, but I can handle multiple things. Yeah, and you bring up, we have these three decks. We have like the sports, we have PD of multiple flavors, and we have Acme. I think what's interesting about them is that although that represents potentially a triangle, the PD and the Acme are similar in quite a few ways. What could still end up happening in the meta potentially is a fourth deck pops up. We were looking at what we thought was a triangle, but when you actually zoom out, that was mostly a line segment. And this other deck over here doing something completely orthogonal to what those decks are doing. Now we actually have the triangle that defines the court meta. Mm -hmm. It would be really interesting to see if that does happen. That might be that outfit deck that Josh is talking about. 
I swear to God it is. It's just not... Mine is not tuned as well as other deck tuners can. And a lot of it can just be, you know, all right, let's take these decks and tweak them and, and address the issues that are there in the meta now. Like, I would not be surprised if moving forward, we start seeing Hippo Index because no one wants to have to break a Hydra or a Data Ward multiple times, you mm-hmm. know, especially if you're planning on Apocalypse. But even if you're not, no one wants mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. let's break it once and get rid of it. Maybe there's a Quetzal Spoon or a Quetzal Knife deck out there. I personally cry. I weep tears openly every time I see someone break Hydra for a second time. Yep. I think there's a reason that you're not seeing hippos was because in the in the sports matchup, it, the ice was so cheap that it just didn't matter anyway. You'd just mm. break it. But yeah, now that Acme is going to be a larger share of the meta, you because those ice are backbreaking. They suck so hard. And if anyone ever gets a, an Ag Infusion deck up off the ground, you know, it's going to be the same thing. You know, Chiashi and DNA Tracker, Anansi, none of those are ice you want to have to encounter more than once. Well, we did see, and Ag Infusion went, I think, 4-2 and two at OTG, and we saw that on stream. I think Melvin was playing against that, and I believe he had to run through Anansi three times and only broke it one of those three times. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that deck got 16th. So it it did pretty well. I'm I'm being facetious when I say Jinteki doesn't exist. It's just it's hard. It's yeah. hard for a Jinteki player right now. With all of what we have said, you know, I know this was a question for you, but I do have a spicy take, which is ban fucking Vashron. Anyway, is that a spicy take? <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. Is that spicy? That's lukewarm at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's that's, probably that's been out on the counter. That's been cooling for several weeks. That's some leftovers, you know. Like my hope is that seamless launch isn't banned. I know there's a lot of calls for it. I like the card because it makes you put an agenda on the table and have it available for at least a turn before you do anything with it. And I think it is perfectly balanced in decks that can't recur it at will. Bring it into into an MBN deck or a Jinteki deck. It's a great tool. It may be slightly broken when you can recur it infinitely upon scoring the agenda that you just used yeah. to score with. I can acknowledge that this is a this is a extremely maybe slightly too powerful ability, but the core of it requiring the card to be on the table and the runner to actually have a chance to steal it before you just score it. I feel that that makes it fairer than something that just scores from hand. I agree. I would even go so far as to say that. The banning of Tenon was an overreaction to how good Potatoes decks were. And I think that something like Seamless is completely fair in the game and in the spirit. I think Never Advance should be a valid strategy. And Seamless is like the perfect Never Advance support and allows the scoring of these cool 4-2s that you don't generally see in a lot of decks. That being said, keeping Seamless, I'd love to get rid of Sandbox. That actually is probably more of an argument against Seamless than even PD is the agendas that you can score with it. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. Being able to score Cyberdeck Sandbox and then make a whole bunch of credits back and purge viruses as a side benefit or off-world office for I've invested two clicks or three credits into it and I gained seven. Tempo positive agendas should be rare, I think or they should come with some form of drawback if they are stolen. Mm-hmm. Those two agendas have neither of those drawbacks. I think there mm-hmm. are two very reasonable takes about Seamless. One is exactly what we just went over, that really, I don't know if Seamless is the problem. I think the agendas are the problem. The other is, I'm not sure that the PD deck is a problem. 
before the sports deck really was introduced, people were fine at dealing with the PD deck. Like they, the decks were tuned to at least fight what PD was doing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you had very reasonable matchups with 419 with a lot of runners against it. Mm -hmm. It's just that since you also have to beat sports, it's hard to beat PD. Again, I'm not sure that that's an inherent brokenness of the deck. I think that's just Mm -hmm. the fact that in many healthy metas, you are stretched to do multiple things as a deck, and it is now mm. therefore difficult to beat multiple decks. I think that it comes down to what Cranked called the Titan problem. PD decks and the sports decks, at least the ones that are tuned to just score, 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 score. There are some games, and it's a non-trivial amount, where the game is decided in basically the top nine cards. And as the runner, you look at those decks and you go, what in the hell could I have actually done? Like, what could I have done? And the answer is just nothing. And that feels really bad. And the answer is draw better. That's not yeah. a very good answer. But I mean, yeah. we're still seeing this in, you know, in the early days of Asa. The runner would run into a gatekeeper and they draw a bunch of cards and then they'd score, mm-hmm. you know, a 4-2 and suddenly your board state is worse and they have six pieces of ice installed and you're just like, what? how did that happen so quick? So I think that Netrunner has always kind of had this problem though, because even if you roll back several, several years and you look at NEH Fast Advance and you look at Astro Training, it's not like a strategy of I'm going to win before you can do literally anything has never existed in Netrunner. With one notable exception, but not in the actual game of Netrunner, no. So I do think that if we have PD banhammered to the point where it's not a competitive viable deck, that is an overreaction to the deck being good. But I do think that you could take one or two legs out of it and slow it down by just a turn or two, and it would be absolutely fine. On that note, I think we've talked about Netrunner for quite a while now. I think we've got some good takes, some questionable takes, mostly coming from me and Josh. Absolutely. I, I think that that's enough talk about Netrunner for the moment. I would like to talk about some of our fondest memories of the weekend, which are hanging out <sighs> with other Netrunner players, but not while playing Netrunner itself. That's right. It's time for one of our beloved segments. No, 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 God, no. Why? Why do we not get to do Akamatsu Memchip? I don't get it. Because we don't have time for chips and salsa. We need to get rye to making that bread. What? That's right. It's time for baking up Think Loaves. What were some of the highlights of the weekend for you outside of playing actual Netrunner? What's our first loaf? Seeing everybody. I miss you guys. I miss seeing my friends. You know, it's been... Over a year, maybe maybe almost two years since I've seen people in person. Mm-hmm. Magnum Opus, I think, 2019 may have been the last time. Was it 2019? It was 2018. 2018, yeah. 2018, yeah. Yep. So 2018, maybe Nisei Worlds after that. But like, it's been a while since I've seen people, you know, and I like hugging people. I like seeing people in person and hanging out and chilling with them and getting up to shenanigans. And it was a good weekend for that being around people I missed. Vaccinated, mask, taking precautions, but seeing people was nice to do again. It was good to see people, but it wasn't like Gen Con crowd level of people, a massive amount. It was just the right amount of people. Mm-hmm. 
it's hard to explain how good it feels to just walk into the lobby of the hotel you're staying at or walk into like the room that the tournament's going to be held at and oh look cranked over there let me go say hey to cranked shout outs to cranked chris is like the first person that i see in the hotel lobby it has literally been three years since we've seen each other in person yeah yeah it's hard to replicate that out i don't know i don't know if it's hard to replicate it outside of gaming spaces but i think it is a feeling that you naturally get in a lot of gaming hobbies because the times that you see people who are genuinely friends, it's just the only times you actually see them because you live far across the country from each other are big tournaments or big events. And if there are periods of time like 2019 to 2020 to early 2021, where there aren't big events in person, you just don't see those people. Mm -hmm. And I'll be honest, you know, being on the West Coast, this is not a cheap trip for me. Hotel, airfare, airfare being significant costs, plus food and everything. It gets expensive to do this. And I'll be honest that if there still had been in-person Nisei Worlds in Toronto this year, I probably would not have come to Off the Grid because I can only afford to do one big trip for gaming per year. Mm -hmm. When they canceled that and put it online, this opened up and I'm really glad it did because I had a fantastic time. You know, it's still, it's still an expense, but it was worth it. Obviously, I did well. That makes me want to come back. If I had gone like 0-6, oh, <laughs> I'd be like, <laughs> I'm not coming back ever. But uh very fun. It was something that I would definitely highly consider coming back to next year. It's always a matter of can I get the time off from work and can I can I budget the funds for it and mm -hmm. what else is going on? But it, this was a strong showing. I don't really have much to add. What you guys said is true. And I think I've said that on the cast multiple times. And, you know, honestly, that's why I, I run things as well is just to facilitate that sort of thing. If somebody doesn't step up and run something, you don't have the opportunity to do that. So it's, it's exactly for the sentiments that y'all expressed. Bring it to something a little bit more different here and poke and prod a, another answer out of you. As always, we're turning Bacon Up Think Loaves into a bakery. The bonus loaf is what was your favorite non-Netrunner gaming experience from the weekend? Oh man, um, there were there were a few moments there. Um, playing skull with a bunch of a uh, mm. bunch of people on Friday evening. I that was that, that was, was quite so fun. fun. You know, Pansy were there, and Melvin was there, and Jeff Yusengrin and Chris analyzed Chris. That's always an excellent bluffing game, and and that crowd was so no one trusted anyone. <laughs> it was great. Chris had some challenges with people putting down skulls a lot and he would just kind of be bidding and, and going for it and trying to win and hit a skull every time. Oh um, no. Oftentimes on the very last tile, which was, it just always makes it so much tastier when it's like, Oh, they just need to flip one more. And it's a skull. Um, I did do a few rounds of a uh, blitz chess with a uh, Dan Dargenio kicked his ass multiple times. I used to play chess competitively back when I was in uh, elementary school through high school and still dabble in it today. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was also just kind of hanging out. I don't know if the, it's still Netrunner, but it's Netrunner with an asterisk in, in the Roseville cycle draft that uh, CTZ put together. You know, I had an opportunity to play in a 12-person uh, draft, and that was dope. <laughs> like, drafting Netrunner is always fun regardless, especially when you, you do hypercube drafting where you're drafting play sets of cards. 
but then throw in the craziness of the Roseville cycle cards and and you can come up with some some uh, pretty powerful, pretty crazy things, pulling off hat tricks and, and dumb skateboard tricks and doing wild stuff. It's a lot of fun to just kind of approach the game a little differently than you normally would care less about wins and losses, although I was undefeated in the three games I played. Embrace the uh, the mad world of, of CTZ's mind in, in the Roseville cycle cards. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a ride in there. I agree. I think we can definitely call that Netrunner with an asterisk because we're going to have a full episode on the Roseville Cycle 2 coming up. And we actually captured some footage of people playing the Roseville Cycle live that is going to work its way into that episode. But the goals of the Roseville Cycle are just so different than the goals of regular Netrunner sets Mm -hmm. that it really does feel like a completely different game, even though, you know, the rules are the same. Oh, yeah. I keep saying that it's the the unglued of Netrunner. And the whole point is not to win games. It's it's to do JPEGs and skateboard tricks. I mean, come on. I would go into mine here, but I think we're going to have a more extended discussion of it in that full episode. Just we did bring up this like idea of in Netrunner, there's no real way to win without interacting with what your opponent does. The deck that I drafted is the exception. And it doesn't appear in Netrunner. It appears in Netrunner asterisk. Yes. Yep. To wrap up this segment, I do have an answer for it. Mm. I played Weird Doomed with Hawk, Vandover, Dr. Awkward was his name in the tournament. I don't remember his real name. And then one other person whose name I can't remember, and I'm sorry, dude. It's this game where you're trying to contribute to a pile in the center, and you're trying to get off a doomed planet. And you have to get a certain number of resources in the pile in the center before the game ends. But you can get more influence than other people. Like, say you don't put enough resources in to build enough seats to get everybody off the planet. You can gain resources that will give you priority seating. If everybody trusts each other and you all contribute to the middle, it's fine. And you all get off the planet. Well, that generally doesn't happen. In particular, one game was pretty great where Vandover was talking about getting rid of... Oh, it was Joe. Joe was the other player. It's King Joe. (laughs) So Joe Joe was gaining a lot of this resource that allowed you to get priority seating. And Vandover was just like, he's not contributing. We should just nuke him. And that's an action you can take in this game. You can nuke an opponent and take him out of the game. He's going to steal our seats. We should just nuke him. I thought that this was kind of like a play. So when I built up enough resources to get rid of Vandover, I was like, Vandover, I'm, I'm going to nuke you. And he's like, what the fuck? I got away with it too. So we put in enough resources to get everybody off the planet, minus Vandover, and we were good to go. It was awesome. So I I nuked him, and then I got away with it. That's very rude. That's just extremely rude. Ended this man's (laughs) whole career by nuking him. Yep, ended his career and then got off the planet scot-free. Going to make things awkward on the next planet. Like, How do you you trust the dude that nuked someone? That's fair, but I I nuked the dude that was... I guess that's not part of the game, though, so, you know. Yeah, I I I nuked the dude that was arguing we should nuke other people, though. I got rid of the threat by being the threat. I feel like there's some some real-world geopolitical problems with that practice, but... uh, A few, a few, I would say, yeah. It worked. Aggressive (laughs) detente. Oh, that game, if you guys haven't played it, uh, we're doomed, and it's it's pretty fantastic. It's so weird, but really fun. I think we're done with baking up Think Loaves. I think that means it's time for our next segment. 
a bread and butter segment. Well, no, we already did making a thing. Oh, yeah, that's right. It is one that we do very frequently, though. It's one of our longest segments, a segment that is near and dear to our hearts, near and dear to the hearts of everyone that is on the podcast. At least I think so. No one's ever told us that they don't like it. It's a segment called Banner Nab. Josh, would you like to run us through Banner Nab, all of the intricacies of this segment? Absolutely. So on Banner Nab, our guest comes on and selects a card that we then ask ourselves whether or not we would ban or nab the card. So Chris, today on the Slums Cast, what card have you chosen for Banner Nab? Luminal Transubstantiation. Ban. Ban. <laughs> Immediate. Nab. Well, once again, we have some dissent on Banner Nab. Unfortunately, we are far too busy. No time to unpack that. We have to move on to the next segment, which is the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. We typically also leave this choice up to the guest on our episode. Chris, do you have a choice for the bad card of the week that is still bad and you still shouldn't play it? Archives interface. Archives interface. I agree. That is a pretty bad card that you still shouldn't play it. Why do you choose Archives Interface as the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it? It's one of those cards that tempts you into playing it, especially with all of the PD and the fast advanced tools from sports right now. You want to play it. You want to just run Archives and get rid of these cards so that they can't recur them and they can't bring them back. But don't do it. It's a trap. It slows you down. You're never actually going to gain value off of these runs. How much money does Archives Interface cost again? It's three, three to install. Three, good lord. That is so much money for what it does. There were times, you know, especially now that, you know, we have built-in recursion with Spin Doctor that everyone is playing and, you know, PD being able to bring back cards. There are times when you think, oh, yes, I want to play this card because I want to get rid of these things. I don't want them to keep bringing back their fast advanced tools. But you're focusing on running archives, which typically isn't giving you much, and you're not gaining new accesses. And if you want to play it early enough in the game to make it valuable, it doesn't really do anything to help your board state. Like, it's not helping you. It's just trying to hinder your opponent from having a future advantage. That's not what you need. You need to be able to advance your board and, and be proactive, and archives interface is reactive. Not to mention Spin Doctor, like you mentioned. Spin Doctor is faster than Archives Interface. Mm -hmm. You have to run, you have to give them a window to res and use a Spin Doctor. Yeah, and that's that window is before you breach the server mm -hmm. because the last paid ability window is right before the run is declared successful. So, yeah. I will say that I agree with Chris. Historically, when there's been fast decks in the meta, like scroll back to NEH Fast Advance, it was all about being proactive against it, preventing the scores of the Astros or using turntable to take away an Astro, which sure, you might say is like hindering your opponent, but I would argue that turntable is a is a proactive card. It's actually doing something to affect the board state of the game. You're looking at this card, and if it's going to do anything, number one, it doesn't do anything when it's just installed. Like, it just doesn't It doesn't do anything. You have to run archives for, for it to do anything. And number two, it has to ha have a target in archives. You have to run at the exact right time that you're going to get the card that you want. You're thinking best-case scenario already. Like, the seamless is not in their hand, or the archive memories is not in their hand. And typically, they've already used it, if that's the case, as well. You're spending three whole-ass credits, which is a million dollars, for a card that doesn't do anything unless you run archives. 
And then it still doesn't do anything unless the card you want to remove is already in archives. Okay, I normally stand up for the bad card of the week if it's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. I just cannot in good conscience do that here. I don't know if this is standing up for it, but I'm going to ask a question. Was there ever a point in time where Archives Interface was worth playing? IG. Yes. When industrial genomics decks were in the meta, it was worth it to run archives and just clear it out so that you can then trash things. Especially if they're on museum, I assume you like mm-hmm. you can yeah, actually any, any decks that wanted to just recur everything. Gagarin was another example where it was valuable to get things out of archives and just remove mm-hmm. them from the game. I will say that's what, because... what are they gonna do? Score seven on you? exactly that's the key difference is right now decks actually have like every good deck has a viable scoring plan they can actually win if you remove their weird win condition versus back then if you defang the threat of bioethics how does ig ever beat you they exactly i would further say that the core strategy of that deck the reason that this card worked against it was the core strategy was having certain things in archives or recycling certain things from archives. So those things are guaranteed to be in archives. So running this, getting something from archives was a guarantee. With PD, you're you're not guaranteed that there is a seamless in there. That's not the core strategy of the deck. In fact, I would say the core strategy of the deck is not having the seamless in there. It's having it in your hand. So (laughs) It, it hits archives for a very short amount of time exactly exactly yeah so yeah absolutely like six shock ig the brief window that that was viable deck this was brief horrific fantastic yeah horrific it's not good anymore right especially with pds like not only is spin doctor faster this is also chris you brought this up as a good play this is also the faction where you have vitruvius counter as counterplay oh counter is counterplay that's good it's literally counterplay Damn, I'm a genius. <laughs> Damn, you're good. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sticking up for the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it either. I, the math just isn't there. I mean, the only case in which running archives is going to give you enough value to do that is if you're, I don't know, a deck that's on like red teams or something like that. But if you're on red teams you're probably also on security testing and gaining two credits from a thing that you installed from zero is usually going to be better than removing one card from a thing that cost you three to install. I think that, you know, it's bad because the decks that are popular in the meta right now have no need for it. Maybe even if uh, Jinteki PE becomes a thing, you know, with a few more archives traps or something, then maybe you might see it played if that becomes the deck to beat. Because you need to steal Obokatas when you just remove them from the game, and then Oof. the Corp can't win either. There is nothing better sometimes as a runner than stealing agendas and then removing them from the game with the intent of stealing enough agendas that neither player can win the game. The skateboard trick you're describing is the full Vicarin. Yeah, we, we do call that the full Vicarin. That is one of the, uh, I'm not going to say one of the better feelings in the game, but that is one of those <laughs> like achievement unlocked moments. If you said it was one of the better feelings in the game, that's definitely a sign that you've gone to the, the Netrunner dark side, I think. <laughs> never been a prison player, never been a, a lockdown player. When you accomplish that, it is one of those moments in Netrunner that you remember. 
I will mm-hmm. definitely say that it is the dark side because commonly how Vikran did it was with the shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, would... I have played uh, Ian decks that would do that with Data Dealer. Oh, um, yeah. It's like, oh, I'm ahead of you on points. Can't have that. Let me sell not it for anymore. nine and then drip two more. I'm not locked in here with you. <laughs> Spags did argue that my Zaya deck was a prison deck in, mm. in some ways, but given that he was on CTM and that was tag me that survives boom kind of directly beats that deck since he wasn't playing psychographics, he, he felt very imprisoned by it, but it was not my intent to make it a prison deck. Is counter surveillance Zaya typically a prison deck? I feel like it's a prison deck for CTM that's on boom and not psychographics yeah. specifically. Yeah. But like against most decks, I feel like it is not a prison deck. No. It, I think no th- more than 419 is. I mean, 419 can doof mm-hmm. you. And honestly, 419 is more of a prison deck in the sense of you doof them three times, you rebirth to Steve, you doof them two mm-hmm. more times. For a long time, there was the the 419 money prison deck, you know, when mm-hmm. you had pad taps and... Oh, and- God. Yeah. Uh, corporate quote unquote, quote unquote, unquote, quote unquote, quote unquote, grant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There was... A prison blue deck. This is kind of Zaya is not that, except in yeah. very specific circumstances. I would say on runner side in Netrunner, prison decks have been relatively rare. And the only ones that I can think of were exactly the ones you're talking about. Like 419, take all your money. The Reina, take all your money. Yep. Mm-hmm. Headlock. Headlock. And Val DLR. Well, there were other runner prison decks that just never reached the same level of success or notoriety. Many of mm-hmm. them piloted. I mean, the reason that we call removing enough agenda points from the game so that neither player can win on agenda points, the full Vicarin, is that the player Vicarin very frequently played runner prison decks that either had that goal or had a similarly degenerate goal. And I mm-hmm. think probably the runner prison deck that I remember having the most success was Au Revoir Woo, where you just get three oh, Au Revoir out on turn one of the game. That's fair. And then you just run archives and jack out like 30 times. And now you have enough money that you flashbang and or Ankusa and or D-Res with like some other thing, every single ice on the board and the corp just never wins. If I remember correctly, the most horrifying version of that deck that I ever saw, it even played e uh, Equivocation, right? That's the card that makes you draw when you mm-hmm. run R&D. Yeah, yep. so it, it would play Equivocation when it ran R&D on like, you know, ice that can't be rezzed. And it also had, there was a current in the game that saw very little play because it is not good. But it says if the corp draws a card and it isn't the first card they've drawn on their turn, they lose one credit. Corp clicked for three. Great. Run R&D three times, drain three credits, your go. <laughs> Sorry, run R&D four times, force you to draw four times, three of those drain a credit, your go. It was disgusting. That is the most horrifying version of like the runner prison deck I've ever seen. Not necessarily because it was the most effective, just because imagine being in that game. Imagine it being a tournament where you don't just concede and like shut your computer down and like go on a walk. Imagine that you actually <laughs> have to play that out because there's like the 1% chance that you win. Oh no. That's not just going to jail. That's like, that's going to like Alcatraz in space. The worst thing you can have in a prison mashup is hope. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Got the feed. 
I think we lost the thread a little bit there. Do we have bit, anything else that we want to say about this terrible card archives interface? I do have one thing I want to say. This podcast is not weekly, but typically the bad card of the week that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it is a weekly recommendation. I'm actually going to, we're, we're going to change the segment. This is the bad card that's still bad and you still shouldn't play it. It's not weekly. You are not free to play archives interface eight days from now. I'm excited about Borealis. Uh, oh, yeah. That's going to be fun. I'm hoping that they update the MWL between now and Worlds. Um, I agree with so you. So that things are a little different from what we've been playing. Actually, that's an interesting question. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on when the meta gets updated relative to big events. Because I always like the idea of the big shakeup happens with enough time to test, but not enough time to solve a meta before a large event happens. It really rewards people who can explore a new meta, come up with new decks, try to find the new brokenness, and really test in a world where you don't necessarily have the blueprint for the best decks. I think it depends on how big a shakeup the changes to the ban list are. Mm -hmm. You know, if they are like, oh, we added one card and we took one card off. Okay, fine. You know, if it's mm -hmm. like we've added three cards and we've taken six off, then you're like, okay, this is a bigger deal. Personally, I was kind of hoping that they would release an MWL like immediately after Intercontinentals that was mm -hmm. going to affect off the grid um, just because <laughs> I wanted chaos and an immediate shakeup. I knew that wasn't going to happen, but it would have been incredibly amusing. But I think like in general, like three to four weeks before a tournament, before a big tournament, I think is a reasonable amount of time. If you give people a month or so to play test mm -hmm. something new and see how it affects things, I think that's a reasonable amount of time for people to adjust and come up with new ideas without immediately solving everything. Yeah. I have a hot take on that. I'm going to push back that I think that it should happen before every big event. I personally like when MWLs happen before a season or a series, because I like to see the evolution of the metagame. And I am glad that there wasn't anything between any of the continentals or between continentals and intercontinentals or intercontinentals and OTG, because I liked seeing before continentals, everybody was like, sports is the best deck. It's just the best deck. Play sports. There's nothing else that's good. Can the runner control this game? You know, not just win the game, but like control it and set the tempo and set the tone against this fast ass deck. And Sokka... And Ian proved, yes, these max decks that they put together can absolutely control the game and take it away from sports. And that was surprising to see. Not only that, it was interesting to see the shift from sports to PD. PD being like, oh, okay, this, this is the deck instead of sports. And it's also interesting that there were players who went opposite that and were like, well, 419 has a really good game against PD. Let's also see if we can shore up that sports matchup, you know, with the black file being included. And then figuring out that everything's tuned to go fast. Can we win if we slow it down? So I, I love this evolution over a series because I like to see how deck builders and teams start to solve some of the questions in the game that the meta decks pose and how that shifts around and how tech works. I want to be clear. I was not saying that before every big event, there should okay. be a shakeup in the meta. Sure. But if you gave me the choice of like, okay, 
we're at the point in the season where mm-hmm. we've got like the series of continentals coming up mm-hmm. or we're at the point in the year where we have mm-hmm. worlds coming up we're going to release the mm-hmm. last mwl update before those events mm-hmm. and it's either going to happen eight weeks before those events or it's going to happen mm-hmm. two weeks before those events i'm going to choose two weeks every single time and i agree with that close to when a season kicks off or close to when a big event kicks off is definitely better for all we gave ffg shit about the years where they were down to the wire on the MWL before Worlds. Most of those Worlds turned out pretty cool. You know? Well, I think the reason that we were down on FFG for that, and I think that our perception here was correct. The perception was that that was not intentional. The perception was that they were not in control of when that got released, that they were just really, mm-hmm. really, really slow. Yeah. Versus yeah. if there were a policy in place, yeah, you're not going to get the update until like three weeks before, then at least everyone knows you're not going to get the update until three weeks before. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is also true with the current MWL system, but I think there were also some concerns of fairness back in the FFG days. And MWL, because of the speed at which those actually got approved and put out, people might have known about it for two months before it became public knowledge. If the turnaround speed is faster, then there's less of an issue with that. People don't have Mm -hmm. this extra couple months to prepare and know what the meta is going to be. There's still an advantage to, I, I think, being on a testing pod, you know, you do get that extra testing time and you, you can sort of pre-plan about where the meta is going to go. But Nisei, generally, the turnaround between conception of a SBL, testing of the SBL and releasing has got to be faster than FFG. Because those times, even when an SBL takes forever to come out, what's normally happening is you're getting multiple testing iterations. It's not the SBL tested what comes out for three months. Like that never has happened. The one that took like five months to come out, there were like eight iterations of it internally. That gives you less of an advantage when it comes to being part of a testing pod. Although it's it's still there. Uh, there's no way to eliminate that, unfortunately. One of the biggest things, and this applies both to FFG and to Nisei, is communication about what they're doing with the ban list, how far along they are in the process of working on it. Not to knock Nisei, but this is always something that organizations always need to be better about is communication and the sense of, is this a problem that people are looking at right now? How long do you expect it to be before we can see changes to this? How far along in this process are you? FFG was an utter blank when it came to this. And and the thought was just eventually if enough people complain to them, maybe they'll release something. Nisei has a more formalized structure and and actual playtesters that work on this. An area of improvement could be just saying, hey, we are working on the SBL. We're taking this into account. We're at the nth iteration before we release this. Just to know that this is something that the people in charge are looking into and taking into account and looking at results and looking at playtesting and saying that they are doing these things, even if it's, well, we're still doing this. We don't quite know when it'll come out, but we're still looking at things. Even something saying something like that can be valuable at times because it lets Mm -hmm. people know yes, we're, we're working on this and you can expect something to change. I think that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope if this was your first time listening to the Slumscast that you enjoyed it. I hope that if this was not your first time listening to the Slumscast that you still enjoyed it, you know, 
we, we still care about y'all. You're, you're still there in our hearts. If you are not already following the Slumscast, you should be able to do that on just about every major podcast distribution network. Uh, go ahead and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us. Leave us a rating or leave us a comment in whatever podcast distribution network you use. Those help us show up to more people so that more people hear the good word of how not to be good at Netrunner or be good as a person. We also have merch. You can check out the merch. You can get a shirt that tells people that you don't listen to the Slumscast. You can get a sticker to put on your laptop that tells people that you don't listen to the Slumscast. Many good things that you can get on that store. We have special thanks this week to Chris. Thank you so much for being on the Slumscast, Chris. It was my pleasure. I was happy to come on and, and talk with you guys about Netrunner and, and Netrunner adjacent things. Agreed. Are there any shout outs you would like to give while you're here? You know, shout out to all my Bay Area Netrunners. It's always a great time playing with you guys. We are doing games in person, Victory Point Cafe in Berkeley, if people want to swing by. Cool little store that has coffee and food and a whole library of board games. So worth checking out, even if you're not playing Netrunner. We're on Thursday nights this for the last couple months. You know, shout out to, to all my friends and everybody at OGG. It was a great time. You guys did a, a great job putting it together and running it. Really glad to, to be able to come out there for it. Shout out to Runza. Shout out to uh, all the people that helped make Netrunner a fun hobby. Agreed wholeheartedly. If there are any questions or comments that you have after listening to this episode, you can go ahead and direct those to us. Honestly, the best place to reach us is StimSlack. You can find us on StimSlack. We're uh, Neuropanzer and Orbital Tangent on StimSlack. DM us if it's something that you want, uh, like a question or comment that's private. You can also just add us in general, you know, make the beef public, make sure everyone knows what problems you have. However, if you have any concerns with the Slumscast, uh, then you can't do any of that. Sorry, can't reach us. Send an email. I genuinely don't remember the login for the email. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for this or if we should include this in the episode, but one comment I want to make, basically one of my frustrations. We just talked about runner prison text, Josh. Don't get sent yeah. to Nisei prison. Gotcha. But one of my frustrations that has been kind of a near constant here is... Unfortunately, Josh is no longer here on this episode because the Nisei police have come and taken him and thrown him directly in Nisei jail. No it's trial, net, no jury, just straight to Nisei jail. Yeah. It's the net. They work here. Yep. 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 <laughs> net police. Good Lord. <laughs> you'd have to change. Yeah. You'd have to change the flavor text on it, right? It's the Nisei. We work here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that needs some workshopping, but we'll get there. A, a little bit. I, I mean, I'm, I've never, uh, I've never claimed to be a flavor text master. All I did was release one very silly power rankings. I and think like all of the lore for the Roseville cycle. Oh, none of oh, that's yeah. flavor text though. <laughs>